0: Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Well, our scripture reading today is from Ruth, chapter 3. If you would stand for it, it's verses 1 through 15. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned And there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me. Since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you. My daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that. which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you. All you ask all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but it got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said... Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm sure it is abundantly clear to you what that was all about. Thank you. So let me tell you what I plan to do with this in a real simple, kind of compact way. Today's message has the simple purpose of reminding you and reminding me that Jesus is in the ongoing process of redeeming, reconciling, and healing our life story. And he's bringing this redemption and reconciliation and healing into the details and specifics of your pain and brokenness and sin. That's the essence of what I want to say. And... That's what I think is going on, at least in part, in this story I just read. Psalm 107 is a marvelous recalling of God's redemptive and reconciling and healing work in the lives of His people. Here's how Psalm 107 begins. Give give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. And then this phrase, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. It would be good for us, ...to think about our personal story today. When someone asks, hey, tell me your story. Or tell me something about yourself. Or what's your story? It would be good to have in mind the specifics we would share in response to that question today. Not because we're going to say them to each other or share them, but having those things in mind will help personalize the time we are spending in front of God's Word. The Psalm 107 ends with this wonderful admonition, let the one who is wise ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. And my hope today is to stoke the fires of gratitude and delight within us as we reflect for a few minutes on our life stories and ponder the loving deeds of God, to us. Life in the 21st century, it seems to me, often resembles a one-person kayak navigating dangerous whitewater with one caveat. The whitewater never stops. It never slows to a gentle flow. Now, I've never done it, but kayaking whitewater looks daunting from my perspective. The skill required to negotiate all the dangerous rocks, the relentless pace of the water, the constant twisting and turning to stay afloat, and the pressure of all of this resting on a single set of shoulders. And imagine again, the white water never stops. It never gives way to the gentle flow. You never come to the end of it and then just sort of float out and lift the oar and breathe deeply. The white water goes on. I would think it is difficult to navigate whitewater and think about anything other than survival. It's kind of an all-consuming adventure. Let's call it the whitewater effect. Life in the 21st century is characterized by this whitewater effect. It's an all-consuming adventure. It's often daunting and dangerous and relentless and pressure-packed, and we get caught up in it and pushed and pulled along by it. Those of us who are followers of Christ profess to trust Him, and we profess to have faith in Him. But I am not so sure exactly how this makes much difference in the real nitty-gritty of 21st century life, because life comes at us so fast, whether God is in the picture or not. Life can be all-consuming, whether God is in the picture or not. It is this whitewater effect. It just never seems to slow down. There are occasions when I think about my everyday life and how I'm doing my everyday life. Just kind of whatever reason, some kind of pause will happen, and I'll sort of step back, and reflect on my everyday life and how I'm doing my everyday life. And the fact is, I am often hurriedly moving from one thing to the next. There's a degree of frantic, a degree of hectic. There are tasks to fulfill, obligations to meet, and practical life issues to resolve. And much of the time, just trying to keep it real, I feel like I'm just trying to keep my kayak afloat and avoid the sharp rocks. I feel pushed and pulled in the white water of everyday life. And while I have faith in God and I believe He's somehow present in my life and in my story, I am not always present to Him. So this is the whitewater effect taking its toll. I get lost in the frantic and in the hectic. The rapids are running and I'm just going along with them trying to stay upright, and I forget that Jesus is in the ongoing process of redeeming and reconciling and healing my story. And he's bringing this redemption and this reconciliation and this healing into the specifics of my pain and my brokenness and my sin. And so today we are talking about story quite a bit. Certainly, our unique life story, but far more importantly, how our life and how our story fits in God's bigger story. One of the beautiful parts of the book of Ruth, it's four chapters, and one of the beautiful parts of this book is it is an ordinary story. It's like most of our stories. It's ordinary. Maybe with the exception of Richard T. Lane, who is extraordinary in every fiber of his being. So it doesn't apply to him. But for the rest of us, who are just ordinary and everyday, Ruth's story is an everyday life story. It deals with things like suffering and loss, loyalty and kindness, friendship, heartache, complaining to God, lamenting the sufferings of life, hope and discouragement. It deals with marriage and duty and family and God's ongoing, redemptive, and reconciling work in these detailed life issues. Ruth was a Moabite, a Moabite from the land of Moab, a non-Jew. She was an outsider who married into a Jewish family. Her in-laws were Naomi, her mother-in-law, and Elimelech, her father-in-law. Then Elimelech died, leaving Naomi a widow, and after about ten years, Ruth's husband died as well, so she too was a widow. And if you read the early parts of the story of Ruth, you discover this family suddenly found itself in the midst of a season of suffering and trial. And in those days, back then, an unmarried woman had a much harder road. Ruth is now a widowed stranger living in in a foreign land. The deck was stacked against her. Talk about being in the thick of the white water. Survival was no guarantee for her. The struggle was real. But as this book so beautifully outlines, God was at work behind the scenes of Ruth's life, bringing forth his redemptive and reconciling and healing purposes in her and in Naomi and in their family, all for the sake of the world. And he's doing the same kind of kingdom work in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships, in our sins, in our pain, in our brokenness, in our past, and in our present. God is up to something in your story right now, today. But to see it and to celebrate it we have to now and then find a way to veer out of the white water and slow things down and think about our lives in the context of God's bigger, grander, more magnificent story. So let's talk about remembering God's story. One of the interesting aspects of Ruth's story is that God is clearly involved in it, but not in overt or in dramatic ways. There's not a big splash on it, but God is. Working behind the scenes, carrying things along. God's name is mentioned a few times in the book. Not much, but it's mentioned a few times. But the author of this book is rather bashful about identifying God as the maestro of the various events in the book. God is working behind the scenes in the story of Ruth. I think this is God's preferred M.O. I want you to think about this. God is working out his plan and purposes in Ruth and Naomi's story, but he's doing it quietly, behind the scenes, without any fanfare. See, Ruth's life and story was a subplot in this thing we're calling God's bigger story. And here's the key. Ruth's life and story was a subplot in God's bigger story, even before she realized it. Put it this way, God was at work in Ruth's life before she realized God was at work. All sorts of difficult things happened in Ruth's and in Naomi's lives. And Naomi actually felt like God had abandoned her. But all the while, God was working in these everyday life experiences. He was bringing forth his redemptive purposes in their story and through their story, long before Ruth realized it. And that is crucial for us today. She had no idea God was doing anything. In fact, you could make the case, she didn't even know who God was when she married into the family. In fact, she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And yet, right from the get-go, God the maestro is orchestrating things in her life even though she did not realize it. See, in Ruth's story, and we could go throughout the Bible, Moses' story, Job's story, Paul's story, Peter's story, and in the biblical story as a whole, God is at work in human life and God is at work in the world, usually behind the scenes, often undetected. He's doing things in the lives of those who don't realize He's doing anything. So the seemingly insignificant stuff, as well as the hard and painful things, and the confusing parts of our story, and even in our sins, and even in our struggles, and especially in our losses, all of these have a place in God's bigger story. God is bringing His redemption, and His reconciliation, and His healing in these particular details of our story. So everyone has a bigger story by which they live. Everyone. It's virtually impossible to live without a bigger story providing guidance and context and a framework to our particular life story. Everybody's got a bigger story. I was recently with a friend who is a very good friend of mine. He's not a person of faith. And we were talking about the larger framework governing his life. And I said something like this. You seem to live each day as though it could be your last. And since you only go around once, you are determined to squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of the one life you have. That seems to be the larger story governing your existence. And he said, without hesitating, that is exactly what I do. And his wife, as I'm saying this, her eyes are popping out of her head. She's nodding very passionately. And she goes, that's exactly what he does. She was really good at being real and being authentic about him. But I guess that's another story. So the bigger story guiding my friend's daily existence is that pleasure is the highest pursuit, and then we die. So grab as big of a handful as you can and go from there. Now, Christians believe this bigger story centers on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the writers of the New Testament spend a whole bunch of ink trying to help us understand the magnitude and sheer magnificence of this bigger story. They try to frame our individual story and the story of the church in this bigger God story. They want us to constantly lift our eyes off of ourselves and off of the immediate challenges and pressure points of our situation and remember God's bigger story captured by the single word, gospel. The good news, good news about life right now and life forever, life with God and life under God, good news about the broken and sinful and painful stuff of our stories Good news about redemption and reconciliation and hope and healing. So one of these framing passages, one of these big story passages in the New Testament is Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to read this. You can follow it if you want to. But I'm going to read this. And again, all I want us to think about is the way in which the Apostle Paul is attempting to frame life. And to frame our story. And in particular, the way in which he's trying to help us remember this massively and magnificent big story that God is authoring in this world. So this would be one example of God's bigger story. From Colossians chapter 1. The sun is the in image of the invisible God, the firstborn and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. There's no other way to put it. The Apostle Paul is trying to say, look up and into this magnificent, glorious, massive story that is God's big story. There's another passage. It won't be on the screens. I just want you to hear this one. Once again, Paul is caught up in the thrill of this big story. And he says to the Ephesians, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth Forever and ever. And what's happening? The Apostle Paul is creating this wave of a story and he's hoping in the midst of our everyday lives and in the midst of the white water, we look up and say, my goodness, this is a big deal. God's bigger story. God created the world and intended goodness. He intended goodness and flourishing for all that He created. But sin entered the scene and it injected a curse into all that God created. And this curse infects the entire universe and it infects the human soul. And instead of goodness and flourishing, as we all know, there is often pain and fracture and sin and brokenness. And things are not the way they were intended to be. But ever since sin entered the scene, God's redemptive story has been unfolding. He is healing broken things to restore them to the way they were intended to be. He is reconciling. He is bringing back together things that were always intended to be together, but that were separated when sin entered the scene. The big story of God took a major turn when Jesus came and lived among us and taught us who God really was and how to experience the goodness and the flourishing God originally intended. And the story deepened and widened again when Jesus died and rose again and then returned to His Father. As Paul says in Colossians 1, the fullness of God dwells and is revealed in Jesus Christ and through Him God is reconciling all things to Himself whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through His blood shed on the cross the old is now in the process of being transformed into the new simply good news So wherever you or I see signs of the curse in our thoughts, in our choices, in our memories, in our physical bodies, in our relationships, in the systems of this world, in the sufferings of this world, it is right there in those details where we remember God's bigger story. That he is reconciling all things that want to be reconciled to himself through Jesus. And it is this big story that quiets and calms the whitewater effect in our daily lives. See, it's when we step back for a second. We step back and we answer the phone. And I'm sorry, we step back and we remember. God is in the process of redeeming and reconciling and healing me. And He's in the process of healing and reconciling and healing you. Redeeming and reconciling and healing my story, my past, my present, my pain, my relationships, using Paul's phrase and all of creation that wants to be reconciled. And it all happens through Jesus Christ. He's making the old in me new. He's making the old in all of creation new in and through Jesus Christ. The big story. Let's talk for a minute about reframing then our story. Ruth plays many different roles. Wife, Widow, daughter-in-law, sister-in-law, counselor, comforter, provider. And I imagine there were times, as there are in our lives, where Ruth defined herself by the roles she fulfilled. In our verbiage today, I imagine at times Ruth's story was equivalent to the roles she fulfilled in her life. And this is another part of this whitewater effect. Life comes at us. We've got all these roles to play. Things are happening so fast. We end up framing our story by virtue of the roles we fulfill and the things we do in those roles. And these roles matter. They're part of our story. But our roles are not our story. Sometimes, maybe more commonly, we frame our story in some kind of deficit or some kind of difficulty, like a painful experience in our past, This is exceedingly common. Or we frame our story through an unsatisfying relationship from our past or in our present. And this painful deficit or difficulty becomes the reference point of our story. And it actually frames our story. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, is a good example of someone whose sufferings framed her story. The loss of her husband. The loss of her sons. And what happened? Loss became the reference point for her story. After all her tragedies, she says to her two daughters-in-law, Ruth was one of them, here's what she says, Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She framed her story by her sufferings. This is common. This happens all the time. We frame our life story by our sufferings, by the things that went against us, the things that didn't go the way we wanted them to go. Our story gets framed then by the hardships, the painful relationships. The turmoil from soul wounds we have received. And I will tell you, maybe this is not your deal, but my pain from my life has framed my story for a long time and still does. And for a long time, the pain from my life was the primary thing that framed my story. And so it is good to ask the question, how am I framing my story today, right now? And it takes authenticity, to sort out the real answer to this question. How do I frame my story? Jesus. No, how do I really frame my story? My parents did this or didn't do that is one common way we frame our story. I had this or that experience when I was younger and I never recovered from it is another way we frame our story. I made a decision to do do this or that when I was 25 and it redirected my life. My marriage has never been fulfilling because my spouse isn't this or is that. I grew up with religion. Then this or that happened. And I got hurt, so I left it. These are some of the ways we end up framing our story. Scott McKnight has a great statement. It's on the screen. Life doesn't make sense unless we know the story We are in. So what story are you really in? What story are you really in today, now? Colossians 1 verse 3, Paul tells us the story Christ followers are now in when he says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In chapter 2 in verses 9 and 10, he tells us the story we are in, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. What story are you in? Paul tells us the story we are now in, if we are a Christ follower, when he writes these words in Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He's reframing things that aren't so good into the story of God and saying because he's the maestro at work behind the scenes, all things work together for good to those who love him. See, the biblical writers are constantly trying to help us frame our story in God's bigger story. Doesn't mean everything becomes smooth sailing. Doesn't mean pain is erased. It simply means we know the bigger story we are in. And in this bigger story, God is at work to redeem and reconcile and heal the pain and heal the brokenness and heal the sin in our story. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And that's exactly what it means to reframe our story in God's bigger story. Or if you want to put it another way, what does it mean for me to bring my life and offer my life to God and bring my life into His kingdom? It means I take the story that is my story The good, the bad, and the ugly. From the past, the present, whatever. And I bring that story and I set it into the realm of God's bigger story, His kingdom. And I seek to understand my story in the context of His bigger story. What story are you in? Not about answers. Not about erasing all doubt. Not about denying the pain or pretending it isn't painful. And it's not about fixing anything. It's about the reference point of our lives. Where does our story begin? And what story do we keep returning to? Which brings me to the last thing I want to briefly mention, this idea of owning our story. As you may know, this current series is based on Eugene Peterson's devotional book called Every Step in Arrival. And in speaking about Ruth and the reading that we're using Today, incidentally, if you want to know what these readings are that we're talking about on any given Sunday, you can go on the app, I believe it's there, and you can look it up and you'll see every week until Christmas Eve which of the readings out of this book we're referring to. So in the one that we're referring to today, Peterson suggests Ruth owned her story when she went and asked Boaz to marry her. That's that whole business of uncover his feet, lay down, he wakes up in the middle of the night, because his feet are cold, he looks at her and says, what are you doing? And in ways we can't comprehend, uh, somehow that meant, I want you to marry me. And so that's what was going on there. Peterson writes this, he says, Ruth gets into the story when she steps out of the roles in which she has been placed by others and speaks her own lines. I like that phrase. She speaks her own lines. She's no longer reciting what others have told her to say, or what others have told her to do. She finds her voice. She begins to accept her story in the larger story of God. Not that she understands it all, but she begins to own her story and take responsibility for the rest of her story. Her life is no longer only about the loss in her past. Or the obligations associated with the roles she's fulfilling in the present. She's no longer willing to just watch from the banks of the river. She's now getting into her own kayak. And she's heading down the river. And she's facing the white water with God. And she's finding her place in his story. And she did not realize at all. The move to marry Boaz would produce a child who would be the grandfather of a guy eventually known by all named King David. And from King David would eventually come a descendant, a guy known by all as Jesus. She didn't realize this. When she decided, to use Peterson's phrase, i got to start owning my story i got to step in the kayak and get in the whitewater. See, when we don't own our story, we blame others for it. And we become passive in our story instead of actively cooperating with Jesus in his ongoing work to redeem and reconcile and heal our story. In my experience, people who have been hurt in the past sometimes have a hard time owning their story in the present. They keep referencing what happened in the past, almost as though it justifies what isn't happening in the present. And I speak from experience on this. I've clutched the pain of my past to justify who I am and to justify how I am in the present. And I don't know any better way to say this, but this blocks God from being able to redeem and reconcile and heal my story. Are you saying that we can keep God from doing something? We absolutely can. If we do not want to be transformed, He will oblige our request and will not move. When we think about our future story, when I stand here and look out, over the remaining years I have, or you do the same. The question is, what will the future story be? And the answer is, probably more of the same. Unless we choose to cooperate with God's Spirit in His ongoing work of redeeming and reconciling and healing our story. We have to own our story, in other words, instead of hiding hiding behind our story. And when I think of all these things we've been talking about, I realize there's a degree of difficulty in comprehending these things. I actually struggled to find the words to match the enthusiasm I had on the topic. It's not easy to convey all this stuff because it's a bit elusive, and yet I think it's critical. And when I think about all these things we've been talking about, there's one practice one discipline, one exercise I know I need, maybe you do as well. It is the practice of naming the ways God is presently intervening in my story and bringing forth His redemption. In other words, ways He is showing Himself to me in the present. Ways that He is bringing His goodness into my life. I need the practice of naming, identifying and naming God's redemptive and reconciling and healing work in my story. In fact, as I own my story more, as I come to say, you know what? Enough of the reference point of the past. Yes, there it is. But what's it going to be going forward? The more I own that, the more I get on the lookout for what's God up to in the present to redeem and reconcile and heal my story going forward. And two such things come to mind as they relate to me. And I'm going to close with these two things, and I share these not to have anything to do with me, but I share these because this is emanating out of my own real-time experience, and I trust somehow God will impress on you what's your real-time experience. So here's one way that I've seen God's redemptive and reconciling healing work in my present story. Julia's recently given me a piece of advice. She said it to me. I think the first time she sent it to me via a text message. But she's done this a couple times over the past month or so. And I realized the very first time she said it, whether she said or wrote it, doesn't matter. The very first time I received it from her. Instantly, I realized the words she just said to me are central in my story. They cut right through me and went all the way down to the guts of my soul and started to do something there. And I immediately thought, my goodness, there's something in all that that I clearly need and that God is offering me. God is doing something in me through these simple words to continue His redemptive work in me. This is the advice she sent. Be kind to yourself. Now you may hear that and go, He built that up for that? (laughs) May not mean anything to you. But it meant everything to me. Because she knows me well. And that seemingly benign little phrase has this Redemptive thrust in my story. I know just by saying it again, there's healing in those words. Healing in my story. Kingdom power packed into that phrase. And the minute I heard it, I thought, oh boy, God's churning on this one for me. Let me give you another example. I was recently in Arizona visiting my parents. I won't go into all the details here. They don't matter. So you can fill in the stuff. I'm sure you're capable of it. One night I was going to go barbecue at this communal grill that's out in this common patio area where, of the facility where my parents live. And I'm getting all this stuff ready to go down this elevator and go out to this grill. And there's like nothing I like more. Nothing. Nothing. Then sitting in one of those types of situations, sitting outside on a porch or sitting around a grill. Shoot. I wish someone's phone would ring right now. But anyway, (laughs) and I said, I'm going to go do this. I'm gathering all this stuff. And my dad said, I'm going to come with you. So we went down there together, and I got the grill going. And I'm just drinking in this setting, outdoor grill, waterfall, lights. I'm sitting there. I get the grill going. I put the meat on. My dad's sitting in this stool. I'm sitting in this stool. And somewhere right in the moment, right smack in the moment, I become aware of God's healing work in my soul through that small and seemingly insignificant event. Something's happening. Like I just knew the maestro had orchestrated this goodness. And something deep in me was reviving, inching toward healing, awakening, and moving a fraction of a centimeter closer to being the way God intended for me to be. And it just happened in this everyday life thing out of nowhere. See, here's the deal. Jesus is in the ongoing process of redeeming and reconciling and healing your life story. Past, present, future. And I'll tell you one of the most difficult parts of standing up here and talking about this stuff is I know a number of your stories. Manuel mentioned this at the outset of the service. We're not just showing up here, singing a few songs, kind of randomly in this and casually that. There's a sense of connectedness. So I say these words and I'm panning across and here's what's going on in my head. Oh, there's one. I hope they hear this. I hope that lands. I hope that gets into them because I don't think they believe that and I want them to believe that. Jesus is in the ongoing process of redeeming and reconciling and healing your life story. So keep your ears and your eyes open because he's up to something in the simple like a text from your wife. He's up to something in the mundane. Let's pray. Jesus, it's when we <clears throat> we actually let ourselves get swept up in the kingdom story goodness flourishing healing redemption grace forgiveness it almost hurts more than all the rejection the magnificence of your love almost has a sharper point on it than the reality of the pain Because it is so good. And it's what we long for. It's the story we want to be true. And it is the story by which we see and understand everything else. And so my prayer this morning is for those who are here. And they're in their story. That we might continue to learn how to frame our story in your story to lift eyes off of the stuff of our story and onto the goodness and the flourishing of your story, that we might find our place in your story, that we might believe your spirit transforms and reconciles and redeems and heals. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.